0: Welcome to the Modern Art Notes Podcast, and happy 2024. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Leslie Martinez. MoMA PS1 in Queens is presenting Leslie Martinez's The Fault of Formation. It's on view there through April 8th. The exhibition features paintings built with paint, folds, pools, and collaged materials such as rags and dried acrylics. Martinez's way of making paintings mines the history of abstraction, certainly, and also a no-waste approach informed by methodologies of Rascuaquismo, a term coined by scholar Tomás Ibarra Fausto to describe a Chicano, quote, attitude rooted in resourcefulness, yet mindful of stance and style. The show is curated for PS1 by Elena Kettleson gonzalez Concurrently, the Speed Art Museum in Louisville is showing Martinez's work in Current Speed, Angel Otero, Leslie Martinez, through March 24th. The exhibition features works by the two artists. Each work is new to the Speed's collection. The presentation was organized by Tyler Blackwell. Martinez was previously featured in a solo show at the Blaffer Art Museum at the University of Houston. That was last year, 2023. Their work is in the collection of museums such as the Dallas Museum of Art, the Perez Art Museum Miami, and the High Museum of Art in Atlanta. On the second segment, Anthony Graham on Alexis Smith. If you enjoy the program, please give us a five-star rating and a review wherever you download it. Thanks very much. That helps new people find the show. Leslie Martinez, after the break. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Kehinde Wiley, An Archaeology of Silence. This new body of work from Kehinde Wiley, one of the world's most celebrated contemporary artists, is on view in Houston for the first time. Through his large-scale paintings and sculptures, he confronts the silence surrounding systemic violence against black and brown people. He uses the visual language of the fallen figure with reference to Western European historical art and iconic portrayals of heroes, martyrs, and saints. In the artist's words, quote, The new portraits depict young Black men and women in position of vulnerability that tell a story of survival and resilience, revealing the beauty that can emerge from the horrific. This exhibition is on view through May 27, 2024 at the MFAH. Visit mfah.org slash wiley to learn more. Located in the heart of downtown Berkeley, at the edge of the University of California campus, The Berkeley Art Museum and Pacific Film Archive is one of the nation's leading university art museums, a locally rooted, globally relevant institution that connects audiences with the most exciting artists and filmmakers of our time. Uniquely dedicated to both art and film, BAMFA hosts more than a dozen art exhibitions, hundreds of film screenings, and countless public programs each year, with a growing emphasis on contemporary work by Black, Asian, and Latinx voices. To see what's on view and plan a visit, go to bamfa.org. On view through January 14th at the Getty Center, the new exhibition William Blake Visionary explores the unconventional art of painter, poet, and printmaker William Blake. Now celebrated as one of the greatest artists of the early Romantic era, Blake was largely unrecognized during his lifetime and lived mostly in obscurity. Follow his journey as an artist from his early years as a commercial printmaker to the legendary creator we know today, exploring Blake's wild imagination through acclaimed works that have perplexed and delighted audience for over 200 years. This major international loan exhibition is organized in cooperation with Tate. Plan your visit and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. And we're back. Leslie Martinez, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast.
1: Hi, thank you for having me, Tyler.
0: Let's start by talking about a picture now on view at and promised to the speed, a 2023 painting called Blazing Bounty. And I think that a lot of what's in the pictures you've made, especially in the last year or so, is in this one. And one of those things is a careful, and I suspect mindful, amorphousness, especially in your use of color, which here is a pinkish red, blue, green, and yellow, so about as classic as it gets. What really strikes me about this picture and a bunch of the pictures on view now at PS1 is that there are essentially no hard beginnings and endings between colors. Colors both give way into each other and kind of hover amidst each other. They don't blend, but they cohabitate. And you've done this in a whole bunch of paintings all year. So why do you like this hazy amorphousness?
1: I think for me, it's it has to do with the sort of not allowing the the, the sort of, there's two aspects of the work formally. I think it's like the color and sort of the image sort of based world of color and I guess composition, the composition of the color and then the like sort of material-based things. I'm interested in not allowing either the color or the material to sort of be defined by any sort of Hard edges, if that makes sense, it's sort of like I like this idea of coming in and over from both ends of it, the material end and the and it's a it's a way of it's a, for me I think it's for me it's about these two worlds, like the sort of image based world and the object-based world sort of cohabitating and sort of acting as if they are in a process of formation that is outside of the way that we normally think about edges and painting. I just wanted to be like the sort of in-between place of like co- coalescing or co- co- coagulative sort of formation. So it's yeah, it's this sort of slippage. I think in my sort of childhood thinking, I was fascinated by these books that were misprinted or where the the line didn't meet up with the color and there were these gaps. The sort of overprint or I don't know what you call that in in like graphic design or or screen printing or whatnot, but the sort of offset. So I'm, I'm I I know what interested. you mean.
0: You see it in comic books all the
1: time. Yes, yes. I'm, I think it, this sort of interest sort of stems from that sort of offset, like the idea of the offset, the misalignment of of image and object or of like spirit and body or, you know, two things that are e- ephemeral or like tangible.
0: I think a lot of the things you just mentioned are going to come up as as we talk. But instead of racing to them, I want to raise a few other things that exist within the paintings that I think will make it easier to talk about those specifics in a minute. Okay. One of them is that there's a real sense of movement in your paintings. There's a there's a sense that as if what's happening within the rectangle of one of your paintings, as soon as we look away, it's going to start moving again. And as soon as we look back, it's going to stop and freeze. I wrote in my notes that that's a sense of movement that strikes me as much more like Julie Maritou than Roberto Mata, even though I think they're kind of both here. Are you interested in connoting, communicating, painting, hinting at movement, motion?
1: Yes, for sure. I think it has, it kind of has to go back into that sort of like, I don't know, like a primordial ooze or something, something sort of connotes or elicits motion, like movement and motion in sense of like, I think all of the work underlying, all of the work is sort of this like aspect of formation and, and sort of, you know, way of, of being unsure what, what kind of action is happening. So I think there's, it's, it's an opening to sort of enter different, different sort of atmospheres. But sort of metaphoric, like, you know, they could be metaphors as well. Like, it could be sort of cosmological, metaphorical formation that sort of allows you to think about in there.
0: Allows you to think about creation.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think creation, formation, sort of self-determination, sort of world-building type of approach to painting, it's sort of about the pliability or plasticity of sort of being enthralled by the process of being made. I have to sort of, the sort of thing that keeps me going is the certain kind of awe that takes place in the studio in the process of this making that allows me to, you know, use my hands to mold this material in such a way that it becomes almost like a person or a some something that I can sit and spend time with for a while and like get to know and sort of be excited to come to every day is these like little peaks and valleys and little little areas for your hands to sit inside of or, you know, these little portals that that are are, are sort of cared for and 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 dealt with sort of by way of, of touch. It's sort of like painting with a sense of touch, like a, a real sense of touch, like pressure. And...
0: Oh, there's tactility. There is so much tactility. I mean, so what you're talking about is the other most obvious thing about your pictures, and that is that they are built up from canvas, at least in recent years from canvas, with stuff. So here's a listing of materials in and on your paintings that are on view now at PS1. And I'm just going to read a list. Not everything's in every painting, but everything that I read off is in the show on a painting. Here we go painting rags, studio clothes, dried paint chips, charcoal, coarse sawdust, fine ballast, pumice, iron oxide, sumi ink, modeling paste, plastic film stuffing, which I didn't even know was a thing, polyester sewing threads, paper fragments, mop head fibers, buckwheat hull, iron silicate. Glass beads, rocks, twigs, charred oak, ash, pearlex mica powder, hand towel margins, which is very specific, crushed charcoal, sawdust, which is as painting as it gets, mica flakes, iridescent cellophane, and mylar balloons. <laughs> so <laughs> you just talked about the tactility of the work, but other than tactility, what does? all of that stuff do for you that paint apparently cannot you
1: know a lot of it is is sort of well first of all I'll just start saying that the the hand towel the sort of studio rag is it is a very useful sort of binder it is an edge sealer like <laughs> it is the sort of catalyst or the sort of the material that that really does the hard work of holding down like the sort of larger elements of the work so the work sort of the the aspects of like the three dimensional aspects of the work happen like not directly onto the canvas at first like they they can be in you know sort of chunks like maybe let's just say like twenty eight inches by like I don't know thirty inches like sections that are not you know square like they're they're amorphous. But the those sort of studio rag, hand towels, terry cloth get pasted on like a like putting like mayonnaise on a sandwich. Like it's like that kind of amount of modeling paste, and then that rag does the hard work of really holding everything down. It's like the second layer of adhesion. So they're they're like they they have their own roles. So the role of that one is the biggest role, which is like. Adhere the sort of three D world to the picture world, like you, uh, you make these sort sort of soft, and you know these off these sort of on and off ramps for color and like pouring, and they can get you lost back into into the flat surface, or they can really show you that you've entered the three dimensional surface. So they're disguisers, like they have sort of like this sort of role that I kind of think of as like. The, what do you call when you're like sheet rocking the, 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 I don't know. There, it, it's a smoothing aspect. You can smooth over it. You can allow the texture to show. It holds form and, uh, you can, you can manipulate it in such a way to create more interest or, you know, more peaks and valleys for color to flow around like mazes. And then some of the other stuff, like the mylar balloons, therefore a certain kind of reflectivity backwards, you know, towards the viewer. But, Reflection is kinda of hard. Like I don't I never really want it to feel too uh pretty or too shiny even. Like it is a shiny thing, but then it's gonna get, you know, covered up in, in sort of, you know, thin layers of, of paint that is like and then paint is also like applied in so many different kinds of ways. That's the other thing about the work. It's any kind of way that you apply paint, it's gonna be happening in this work. So yeah, reflectivity like the glass beads, the Mylar balloons, the even that sort of iron silicate material which is like a black shiny very very fine grain rock. They also like all of the texture is not just texture sake, it also is they assist in the in the way that paint flows or doesn't flow. I kind of think of them as like if we were looking at a Like a natural landscape, like a river, marshlands, like in the, where they're going to stop the flow of water or, you know, color can get trapped into like the tiny points of open space between like the granules of like pumice. So it's like everything is sort of has a kind of way of like, you know, contributing to the painting or interrupting the flows of paint or... Just adding, adding to an overall sort of sense of being confused about where you're at in this material sort of cosmology.
0: You're using the language of topography and landscape. Do you think of the act of making as the act of making a landscape? Do you think of there as being a relationship between landscape and what goes into your rectangles? I do.
1: It's funny because I think I, for a very long time, I kind of resisted that because when I heard the word landscape, I always assumed or associated that when that's brought up to me, that it meant landscape painting, like the tradition of it. And so I always would say, no, like I'm not thinking about that, but I have always thought about the ground. And this goes back to being even a younger artist. I've always been interested in kind of corrupting the notion of the ground plane, whether it's kind of thinking about like a tilted plane or some kind of way of of sort of tilting the perception of where is the ground or where is not the ground? But as far as the sort of tactility of the way that these sort of materials sort of emerge from the surface of the canvas, a lot of my thinking is thinking about it like looking top down to the earth. And that has to do with, you know, early influences of the landscape that I come from, and how things were very often seen sort of like a detritus embedded within the fine sort of dirt.
0: Let me jump in and say you're from South Texas. I am.
1: I'm from the Rio Grande Valley of South Texas, like very, very close to the very edge, (laughs) right, uh, right along the river. And yeah, that's like a whole, a whole other topic in terms of how I'm, you know, thinking about these landscapes, but I think, or, or land itself. And The sort of, the sort of mysteriousness of like what's in the earth. So there's like this sort of, there's always this like sort of archaeological impulse in the way that I'm painting or applying paint in a very dry, sometimes dry brush way that I think kind of elicits like the dusting away along like a bone or a fossil. This very gentle kind of hand treatment of of the way that are, these are painted. But yeah, land, landscape landscape is, is key in the work, I think, or a specificity of...
0: It's particularly interesting what you said about how you embrace a certain disorientation between whether we're looking down on or looking over or across. One of the paintings at PS1 titled Out of the Gap, where darkness echoes, mustangs took off running, has in the upper middle of this 13 foot painting 13 feet mm-hmm. yeah that's about right 13 foot painting um just this bright kind of sky blue patch um that covers maybe a sixth of the painting yeah and it's disorienting in exactly that way it's a color we read as sky which is familiar from landscape traditions but the painting almost pulls us back because of the topography of of studio rags and whatnot and makes us consider the painting as both topographically horizontal and topographically vertical. So within all of that stuff that's in the paintings, on the paintings, so some of it you use for reflection or not. Some of it you use, as you said a moment ago, as binder, kind of binding the painting together and allowing paint to pool and whatnot. Is there a semiotics to any of that stuff? Do you use some things because they have certain meanings either for you as a painter or you hope for the viewer?
1: I would say yes, but less so on the emphasis. It's like most of the materials I don't consider to have a personal or a a meaning that is to be conveyed necessarily from it. It's more about what the materials, how they can be employed to do what I am what I want to see happen, so and and those kind of what I want to see happens means that like if I'm sort of thinking about something as like like a jetty, like some kind of jettying or barrier building, sort of holding back, like there are I think semiotic in that regard, but not on not on an individual basis of this material is from this. And it's either meant to be understood or it's a secret. Like there's not that much sort of secret knowledge that would be based on a particular material. Like there's not, like for example, the the sort of crushed pumice, for example, is just serving a role. But I think in, in this sort of this sort of conglomerate, the sort of like thing that you're talking about, where you're shifting your perspective, I would. Hope that when that's happening inside of a viewer's head, like am I looking up or down, or straight through, that their conception of the sort of materiality also changes, like in terms of what they think it would be meaning. So, you know, sometimes there's this sort of sensation or whatnot of like an sort of explosive action where, you know, if that sort of perception of that horizon or the ground plane or whatnot shifts for you, maybe all of a sudden you perceive the entire thing as like a prehistoric animal, or something completely different. So it's just, I'm interested in, like, I think the whole purpose of working in this way is is a, a deep interest in how perception can be shifted based on sort of a longer, more engaged relationship with the word. As you sit with it, it will change.
0: That's really interesting. I kind of the changeability or mutability of the paintings strikes me as being kind of in complete contrast to like Anselm Kiefer's. I mean, Kiefer's throwing tons of muck up onto canvas and insists upon or enforces a certain fixity, whether that's in point of view or words that link specific works to specific ideas or specific histories or specific mythologies. But it's Everything feels really nailed down, and your paintings don't. It's just, I I don't know, I, I find weird things interesting, I guess. One of the things your paintings have, even with all this stuff on them, and even with all of this really intense, moving almost color, is an extraordinary balance between what is important. So colors are tonally similar, and no one color kind of ever really dominates a painting no one or two items of the stuff, whether it's rags or whatever else demands primacy. There's a harmony in the paintings between the back and the front compositionally. I think there's usually a lack of priority across the rectangle. Do you think about balance? And if you do, why is balance within the paint individual paintings important?
1: I do think about balance and I think that's the way that they get finished. And I think I've thought about balance and and sort of like try to interrogate why it's so important to me. Like, and when I when I say balance, I don't think of it as like a formulaic way that I think you know like how we might think that there might be like formal sort of like tricks in, of the trade on how to make a painting feel finished or whatever. Like, I my act of balancing is. Coming to a point, because they can go on forever, like, I could keep going forever. But to make it to make it stop, <laughs> make this end, I do a certain amount of balance that seeks to solve the parts that aren't uncomfortable to me, but without solving them so much to where I'm satisfied. So in none of my work, though, like, I'm, you know, I'm proud of this show. I'm happy. I'm happy with it. I feel good about it. I can never settle on being happy. I have to be slightly uncomfortable with everything I do. But the the act of balancing is me attacking the parts of it that are so uncomfortable that they cannot stand. And so it's it's getting it to a place where I where I feel like it can be seen. And I I distinctly remember finishing this one and how that felt. It was late at night, and I was. It was dark, and I think the thing that finished was adding in the white. So there, there always has to be a way, an opening, like a, a way, and the and the opening is usually through the darkest and the brightest hits. So the dark, you know, the adding in the right amount of black and white to finish the painting, or not necessarily black and white, but like whatever functions as black and white. It can be like a purple, or it could be a green, but yes, and so. When I knew it was finished is when I felt this sort of uh, loop around that blue and it was made by the the sort of cascades of white that are underneath the material bone. So that's when I sort of squinted at the painting and was like, oh, wow, like this sort of feels like an old religious painting or something. It has like this, you know, angels and (laughs) this sort of like that feeling of like it's exalted or.
0: I don't know. There's nothing more painter than a painter saying that purples and greens are black. <laughs> yes. <laughs> One of the results of everything that we've discussed so far, and I think something you may have even mentioned like 10 minutes ago, is that each of your paintings seem to be in transition, in the process of simultaneously forming and dissolving. They're, they strike me as kind of biological in ways that recall like some Sam Francis's in one way and Terry Winters in a very different way. Are you interested in, I don't know, the tension in a painting between gestation and degeneration in in the painting feeling like it's in transit between two states or more states? Definitely.
1: Definitely. Yeah, I think... And that also sort of comes from my very like loose interest in alchemy and the kind of, because I think in many ways the, 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 the way that this work developed was very much thinking of an alchemical sort of basis of this imbuing of value into these very mm. abject and ubiquitous materials to allowing them to do this sort of mysterious work of, so eliciting that sort of formation and collapse. One thing that I I like to play around with is directly is like, very often, like, you know, when, like, you listed off those materials earlier and you said a studio clothes. I think really what that is, for me, it's just the t-shirts. Like I just wear like regular like Hanes or like Free the Loom t-shirts and and they get covered in paint. And then I just cut them back up and put them back in the work as like a holder of like the it's a sort of ephemeral of like the splatter motion and motion or whatnot. But where I'm going is saying that like very often people think that they can witness like a deconstructed garment in there. But that's I deconstruct those those material elements so small that they're not ever meant to show Like there's not like a pair of jeans or a a denim jacket in here, cut up and attached, like ever. So I'm I'm interested in the ways that our brain perceives deconstruction of a garment, when in reality all of these creases and folds are completely made by me. Like they're like the biggest, most you know heavy protruding elements are made of canvas. Like the 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 sort of cut off from the back of the canvas, and they're sewn on the machine in a very abstract, erratic way where the, where I'm going back and forward on the machine and pinching things and holding them down and, and twisting them and then sewing those down. And so it's a fabrication of something that we associate very naturally with the garment, you know? So there's that sort of trickery or like, you know, some people may think that like, these things have physically been weathered by the sun, but it's it's the particular way that I'm applying paint that will get, it's an application of paint that elicits the removal of it. So even in like the use of brushes, very often I'll be applying a paint while also removing it at the same time with the exact same brush in the exact same moment, just based on the way that the paint is behaving at a particular stage if it's like being wet or dry, like I'll put it down, but then it'll take it away. And I'm very fascinated by that. It's almost like ocean waves or something like coming towards you and then pulling you all the way back. Or sometimes I think of the sort of process of making these things as like, like a sewn stitch itself, like the way that you loop backwards to go forward. So I am definitely very interested in that sort of dissolve and sort of construction, because I think politically, the work is trying to talk about sort of deconstructing like an old world sort of in in sort of this sort of possibility of a new world, like in a very, very sort of vague, overarching way.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I, I think like kind of both the sense of transition and balance that we talked about are both within that idea. And and I think you just described the actual physical construction of the paintings as containing within the construction the forces that create balance. You know, you, you do one thing with a brush and it makes and you do another thing in a different direction with a brush and it takes away, like a sea on an ocean, which is really interesting. Also, in, in talking about clothing on, on the surface of the paintings you know you're describing a painting that is a relic of its own construction complete with all the capital C catholic history reference and inference
1: yeah it's it's interesting i i always like have this sort of mantra that i have you know kept i don't know when i even came up with it where i you know i was it was around the time of like these three catastrophic hurricanes I was in grad school. I think it was like Hurricane Maria, then there was another one and another one, and they were all doing major damage. I was just thinking about like the sort of force of destruction and the volume of our sort of built world and how it's the same volume when it's decomposed or deconstructed or broken down. And so I've always been – this mantra I've always had in my head was – it just said, like, the absence repairs the remaining – and there's, it's, it has something to do with this desire to find a self-fulfilling materiality, a materiality that to work with that cannot be restricted by a lack of means. You know, this, a material that can be worked and employed and reformed from its original context and to never ever run out. Like there's no way for it to run out. But I think it's this. Yeah, it, it stemmed from destructive, a destructive sort of a an a, a tense, an intense feeling about the destroyed world, or you know, the damaged world, and and possibilities, and how do you, how do you reform your built world? What's that? What's the volume of it? Because it stays the same; it's just
0: disintegrated. So there's a good bit of that in art in the last half decade. I think you are not alone on that terrain. A lot of the things we're talking about are paired and are not binaries. Formation and dissolution, balance between elements, you know, between paint and stuff. There's stuff that's paired but not in opposition in your work. You're a twin. I am a twin. Is any of this do you think related to your being a twin? Oh my god, yes.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um I think so. <laughs> You know how people are always like, is it weird if, you know, I'm a, I'm interested in asking you twin questions? And I'm always like, no, I'm like it's not weird, being a twin is weird. <laughs> and I'm interested in it, in it as much as uh, as anyone else, I think. It's yeah, it's it, I don't know what it's like to not have a pair. Like to be naturally paired, you know. I I think yeah I don't know how to just dis- I don't know how to answer that exactly.
0: Well, one of the I mean one of the things that really jumps out about your work to me is that there are no binaries in it. So like I'm a big fan of like John McLaughlin's work and 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 especially his kind of impact on what becomes the Light and Space movement in LA. And when you were talking earlier about using whites and blacks in the paintings, even if the blacks are sometimes purple and green. And and how sometimes using uh, a black or a white on the on the surface of the painting kind of helps you come to a finishing point. Um, I was thinking of how in McLaughlin McLaughlin does the exact same thing, but the whole point is the bi- no, not the whole point, but a substantial part of the point is a binary, this and that, full stop. And in your work, there is none, no oppositional binaries.
1: So it, I I'm interested in sort of like this. Em- ambivalence or multivalence in my work. I I think, you know, the sort of aspect of non-binariness I think has a lot to do with the fact that like like when I was a kid, I traveled a lot between my hometown and, and Dallas where I grew up. And the entire time it was a ten hour road trip that it was always McAllen
0: Mac- to Dallas, right?
1: Yes. Yeah, or the or other smaller towns in in the Rio Grande Valley nearby. McAllen is where I grew up, and or partially grew up, and so I was very, very, very deeply, like I guess, philosophically intrigued by the binary nature of my growing up and like where I grew up, what that was like, and where I come from were two very, very, very different places, and. That, you know, dealt with the binaries of like poverty and wealth, even if you could consider a binary of like a multicultural area, which would be like Dallas to a more monoculture place, which would be like down in South Texas, where everybody is Hispanic or Latinx. And so throughout that sort of young childhood, I was on these road trips analyzing the the, the way that we the way that time and space shifted down or up on these road trips, so I was just like constantly trying to understand like how to sort of break out of or exist within or not exist within these air er- these two like sort of areas of polarity either way. I never felt like I fully existed down itself, never felt that I fully existed up here, sort of like there's always like a third space or something that I was interested in, not occupying, but maybe accepting that I could never sort of grapple with both, you know, with one or the other. It was something that had to be sort of in order for me to like not feel insane was just to sort of accept that I was a little on the outside of that or something. So I think that carries into, I think those sort of early formative experiences, of asking yourself big questions when you're like a little tiny person, they materialize in like a kind of vision of expression that that can be your complete total domain to like you make the world yourself there. And I think this balancing is 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 like a hard to say like utop- sort of a utopia type of thing for me, but it's more like about an opening towards possibility that is outside of those outside of any two sort of opposing realms.
0: We've been talking about paintings that you've pretty much entirely made in the last three or four years. You got a BFA from Cooper Union in 2008. You got your MFA at Yale and your CV, like the CV on your website, you know, the, the the buttoned up CV begins with a show of MFA students at Yale in 2016. And I went looking for it, but I couldn't find anything of yours from before 2017. <laughs> what were you making between and that 2017 painting is not unreal. It's called Through the Blows. It was in a show at a Chelsea gallery, I think It, it it's uh, it's not unrelated to what you do now. It's it's got a much harder like, you know. Harder surface than than what you do now. It looks like you could wrap your knuckles on it and you'd feel it. So, what were you making between twenty odd eight and twenty seventeen? That that's all. <laughs> yeah, that's why I ask.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, the crazy thing is, after Cooper Union two thousand eight, clearly the economy crashed, and I didn't. I actually quit painting for about six years. I just said, you know you're not a painter. What are you doing? Like, who do you think you are? And so I I think it was just a sort of hardening in living in New York, knowing that, you know, this world that I was entering into was harsher and maybe more of the real world. So I was from 2008, pretty much ex- exactly after I graduated from Cooper, I went on to Craigslist, I think, as one does, to try to find a job. And I just applied to, like, a bunch of different things. I was just like, I can do that. Oh, I can do that. I can do that. And so I decided to, I applied to a t-shirt graphic company and got the job based on, like, my drawing skills more than, like, my technical skills. Because I, I had, like, you know, some knowledge of, like, Photoshop and Illustrator, but not by any degree to the level that you would need to have a job like that. So I just kind of faked it and learned how to do it while on the job, like constantly being threatened to get fired. So I would just, this just worked hard and just did that for almost close to a decade. So I was, by the time I was graduating, I mean, not graduating by the time I was getting ready to like apply to Yale I had, I was designing for Gap Kids and Baby Gap at Gap Inc headquarters in New York. And that was about close to five years, maybe. And, and, and grad school was always my plan as the, how to get out of this world and get into what I was always meant to do and planned to do. So, but throughout that time, I, there was art making, but it was very, very poor. Like, It would just be like, you (laughs) know, me, me, I had a studio in Gowanus for a few, maybe a couple of years. I don't remember, but it would just be like newsprint and like charcoal and furniture found off the street and it was no windows and it was just not, nothing really actually happened there. I ended up letting it go because it was just like, you are, like I said, not an artist. (laughs) It was, it was intense. But then throughout the times that I was thinking, grad school was always like the big question, like, do I do it or do I not? And I was just witnessing myself being sort of like unhappy and sort of silent and sort of watching the world go around without me. And I was just like, I really do need to do this. And so I applied and I got in. But so by the time we get to 2017, you know, I'm working a lot in sort of beginning these sorts of sort of investigations, like compositionally, whatever, but all within the grayscale palette for the most part. So everything I made at Yale was just black and white, gray with tiny bits of color. But it was because, as I understood then, I was not ready for color because I was not, I was trying to move away from the sort of conditioning of the image world and trying to move into more of a, the tactile, more physical sort of painterly realm where material can do things. But I was sort of divorcing or erasing the, the mater- the image based world that when you go into these like kind of professions, like the first thing that happened when I got into the profession Was I struggled really, really hard to remove the horizon from any image based thing that I made because in the t shirt graphic, like you can't have a horizon. It's like you have to think about something that can float on a t shirt compositionally and feel fine. So you're not really working with horizons. So it took a long time to get away from my world of the picture plane and image making. So throughout Yale, I, by 2017 was the last time I had any kind of figurative reference in an artwork, but figuration was at that point, like hovering between the world of image and complete pure abstraction. Like they were images, but they were like, sort of like more of like a more graphically modern sort of Agnes Pelton type of thought form type of painting that is grayscale. And it was psychological, and it was about all the angsts of you know needing to escape that sort of but they're very graphic, so very, very simple, almost childlike graphic forms that were thought forms that eventually made way to these sorts of works, like in this way, so it's just done in a way where we moved away from the picture and more into matter and then by and then in twenty seventeen, I remember very specifically I was that summer, I was in doing TA, teaching assistant at for at Yale for Norfolk, the summer program for, you know, that's for college art students between 11th and, you know, I guess, do you call it grade? No, you don't call it grades, like junior and senior year of undergrad. The TAs were, you know, we got studios, and my studio was, like, inundated with, like, an old barn so it's like I don't know if you've ever been up there but it was just inundated with various different species of moth so I just got <laughs> really really interested in moths and their sort of little spy like drone like behavior where they were coming in through the window dancing around landing on the work I even had certain crazy bug like have a complete molt on one of my like drawings. Like I just took paper and like flash paint and they would just be pinned to the wall. And this bug just totally stepped out of its skin, like on the drawing. So I was very deeply fascinated by like these notions of like, you know, silent nocturnal communication, like the sonar and the radar, all those things. And then like, then that got deep into like, you know, radar technology and, you know, destruction and, and military equipment. And so I just, at, in grad school, I really did cycle through many weird ideas that uh just, I guess, exercised my muscle conceptually in trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Because I didn't enter the program with like a huge knowledge on what I wanted from it. I was just like, I'm in school, I'm gonna go crazy, like and do everything I can to figure out what is my sort of painter voice and then then obvious and then moving to Dallas. Like I didn't figure it out necessarily. So moving to Dallas is was me adding like almost more time to my grad experience by going and being alone and making trying to figure it out, make work and find the I sort of the my particular Identity with, within what I knew I wanted, which was abstraction, large, big, atmospheric, impact-driven feeling,
0: immersion. Sounds like even though there were six years during which you weren't making paintings physically, that you were thinking through what a Leslie Martinez painting would be when it was time to make one again.
1: Uh-huh, exactly. So I, d- during the entire time, though, that whole span, like I have like a massive, like huge archive of, of Moleskine notebooks that
0: ah, I was going to. So ask I was you.
1: notebooking, you know. And I guess in a weird way, when you are a painter on the inside of your heart, and you are not working, you're always, or at least I felt there was always this sort of vision of what it could be. And it varied dramatically and drastically over the years, but I always just kind of understood this sort of aspect of scale and sort of
2: Mm.
1: being concerned and consumed by the multiple levels of scale within the work, the sort of scale shifting and the sort of battle with the edge and the wrap around the edge and all of these sort of things that that were i think mostly deeply rooted in a desire for embodiment yeah just freedom embodiment sometimes when i'm working i'm just i find it so funny that like my life is about putting my hands in very weird materials and and mixing things up in very weird ways
0: and very fun do you ever go into those old notebooks still
1: oh definitely it's a pretty regular part of my own like sort of research, self research, because I think I think it seems clear that my work is very sort of self dependent. It is about this sort of positioning myself as like almost like the explorer of the work itself. I follow my own breadcrumbs. Obviously, outside influences it comes in and stuff, but. I try my best to be as open and honest about what, where I see work moving next. So it's always about this sort of forward motion that may or may not go the way I or anybody else thinks it will go. But part of that is to always go backwards and read what I wrote in my, like, as a 23 year old or, you know, even as far back as, like, 18, like, I have notebooks that go all the way back to, like, 15 years old. And and just to see, like, that that there, there throughout every sort of, like, style of my working throughout the entirety of, like, Cooper Union to now, there were very much underlying structures that remained the same throughout the entirety of it. And there's always, like, there's, in, in all the work, there's always, like, this, these entry points that have other have other histories like there might i might be thinking a lot about like electromagnetic forces or like biological things like osmosis or these scientific things these things that have to do with like physics or or lenses or all these old sort of sciences you know then there's like the al- alchemy and i think archaeology like there's so many different modes of interest that go into the way that these paintings are made or evolve.
0: I think if somebody listens to this show while sitting in the exhibition at PS1, they will find things you just said and described and referenced in the paintings. You know, oh, I wonder if that's this, and this is that, and that's this. So I I think that's there. Leslie Martinez, thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. This was fun. Artist. Author, activist, educator. Witness the groundbreaking practice of Faith Ringgold in Faith Ringgold American People, opening at the Museum of Contemporary Chicago, November 18th. This comprehensive retrospective features over five decades of the artist's works, which detail the complexity of life in the United States and radical social change from the civil rights movement to today. Plan your visit at mcachicago.org. The Manil Collection in Houston, Texas presents an ephemeral wall drawing by Swiss artist Mark Bauer. The work is the fifth installment of an ongoing series at the Manil Drawing Institute. The 36 foot wide charcoal and pastel mural, titled Resilience Drawing the Line, combines powerful imagery from art history with contemporary references to create a thought provoking narrative. On view at the Manil Drawing Institute through summer 2024, This work will evolve over the course of its year-long display. Find details at manil.org. The Manil Collection is always free. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, presents Lyle Ashton Harris, Our First and Last Love. Drawing together photographs and installations from both his celebrated and lesser-known series, the exhibition charts new connections across the artistic practice of Lyle Ashton Harris, who was born in the Bronx, New York, in 1965. The exhibition explores Harris's critical examination of identity and self-portraiture while tracing central themes and formal approaches in his work of the last 35 years. Lyle Ashton Harris, Our First and Last Love, on view at the Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University from August 24th to January 7th, 2024. Welcome back. Earlier this week, artist Alexis Smith passed away. She was 74. In 2022, the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego presented a retrospective of Smith's work, a major show with a terrific catalog. Next up, we will re-listen to my conversation with exhibition curator Anthony Graham about Smith and the retrospective he organized. Anthony Graham, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hello. Thanks for having me. I would like to start with an installation that Alexis Smith made at a Los Angeles gallery in nineteen eighty. That show is called Raymond Chandler's LA, and it all but kicks off the catalog. And I think it's a really good introduction to Smith's practice, both kind of physical practice and also kind of the issues and and, and ideas that Smith addresses in in her work. So, maybe the place to start is is just real simple. What was Raymond chandler's l a and how was it? How did Smith put it together in nineteen eighty? It is this really incredible exhibition that she did
2: at Rosmond Felson Gallery that consisted of five discrete collage works, and you know aesthetically, those objects sort of look like the pieces she had really become known for throughout the nineteen seventies. They were these paper and cut paper collages arranged linearly and framed in plexiglass boxes and installed on the wall, sort of like, you know, a book unfolded. And, you know, they often drew from books. And in this case, Raymond Chandler and the sort of detective fiction L.A. noir that both that author is known for and has consistently been a kind of interest and motif in Smith's work. But, the exhibition really showcases how Smith's approach to collage was from a very early point, really expansive, that beyond being, or in addition to being, combinations of text and image and object, they were already sort of breaking through the frame of the artwork and addressing the architecture of the space and creating these really room-sized environments. And I think Again, there are sort of traces of this kind of thinking in her, her work throughout the 70s, when she was doing performance and some you know, more specific installation work. But in this show is when all of that really starts to come together. And so the collages are hung on the wall and each collage has a sort of accompanying backdrop, which is painted directly onto the walls of the gallery.
0: So let's talk about the collage technique in a moment. I want to first talk about Alexis Smith's address of California and the Far West. And I think Raymond Chandler's LA is a really good revelation of how Smith does that. How does Smith think of the American West and California in particular?
2: For Smith, Hollywood and Los Angeles and the West are all these kinds of microcosms of American culture, that they they kind of, for her, exemplify an ethos of self-invention that, you know, you can, that anyone can, you know, head west and start a new life and decide who they want to be. And, you know, of course, this is a myth, but it is one that has persisted, I think, throughout our culture and throughout its history. And it's one that she really grapples with. And so... You know, Los Angeles is her hometown, but for her, it wasn't so much that she was from LA that was the reason that she was interested in it, but it was really like Hollywood itself as an industry and being part of a generation that, you know, grew up watching television and watching movies. And so for her, she really thought about it again as this example of American culture that suddenly she was part of this generation that understood itself through the stories that we take in through movies. Always
0: in Alexa Smith, the real is fake, right? Yes. (laughs) And, and, And so that's true to Raymond Chandler's construction of L.A., which was, you know, always exaggerated and always phony. And I suspect that Alexa Smith was also well aware that when Hollywood got its hands on Raymond Chandler, the first film version of The Big Sleep you know, kind of Chandler's breakthrough novel came only seven years after the novel had been written and was not staged in L.A. or Santa Monica, as the case may be, (laughs) but was stuck in New Orleans. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And
2: I think, (laughs) and that's one of the great things about Raymond Chandler's L.A., the installation, is that four of the collages, you know, use Chandler's text taken from novels. They use the novel, The Little Sister, and that is the first novel that Chandler wrote after having been working as a screenwriter in Los Angeles. And so for me, I always think that that's such the cynicism towards Los Angeles that is apparent in the t- the texts Smith is using seems completely related to exactly what you're describing, this like real ambivalent relationship to Los Angeles as a city and Hollywood as an industry.
0: So this is far from the only of Alexis Smith's works to investigate both a physical and ideated geography. And in virtually all of I ah, yeah, that's probably overstating it, but but you know, a majority anyway of Smith's works question the American dream and they question the American mythology that we can be anything we want to be. Are there ways in which Smith does that, that we see unfolding throughout the show and across the catalog? Absolutely. I mean, I think in
2: so many of her works, she is interested in in this this myth of, of self-invention. But the thing about Smith's work that is so tricky is that it's never cynical. You know, there's a real kind of romance towards this dream and, you know, the sort of hope and aspiration that, you know, it might come true and that for some of us it does. But exactly as you say, like the real is always scrutinized in Smith's work. And so you see, you know, these stories of success are always sort of undermined by a final tragedy, a love lost, you know, a a life lost. And, and she does that by kind of retelling the stories that get told in our books and in our movies and in advertising like trying to really take in the the breadth of media that we consume and take seriously how it reflects the narratives that we we continue to prop up you know so whether that's looking at you know something like the red shoes you know a 1948 film that is not even american but that props up this idea that like, you can either have a fulfilling artistic and professional life, or you can have love and personal happiness and neither of those things can coexist. You know, you see that as like a really recurring subject matter in her work in the 1970s. And then coming forward into the eighties, as she really starts to address the stereotypes, cliches and tropes of our culture to point out that for all these things that we think are funny or humorous or enjoyable, that those two are laced with these, these reminders that you know nothing quite lasts as long as we think it will.
0: Right out of the gate, you mentioned that Alexis Smith was thoroughly dedicated to collage. Why was Smith so attracted to collage and you know, in some ways doing something with it that many others hadn't, which was supersizing it across many rooms at once, something that I think now maybe in the art world we now take for granted, but which was, you know, massively less common 40, 45 years ago.
2: Smith's interest in collage began in a lot of ways, like I think a lot of young people's interest in collage does like creating these sort of scrapbook collages out of magazines and and this was something she you know recalls doing as a teenager and then while a student at UC Irvine in the mid 60s you know she describes like taking visual arts classes and not so much learning like how to make art but how to be an artist that the things that she was doing could suddenly be Taken seriously as works of art by her presentation of them as such. And so, in many ways, does come from a sort of self confidence in her work. But she remains really committed to it, I think, precisely because of her sort of passion for the stuff of our lives. You know, that as much as she's trying to really think critically about, you know, these cultural objects that we live with she's not trying to criticize them outright, but really trying to understand how they impact us. And so everything from books and movies to junkyard objects, things she buys in secondhand stores, she's trying to really elevate these, you know, perhaps humble objects to like the status of fine art and to take those things as seriously as we might take the opera, Madame Butterfly. And so there's really a belief in questioning the distinctions between high and low culture, between good and bad taste that really motivates her work.
0: To take a Chevrolet ad in a magazine more seriously than even Chevrolet might take it.
2: <laughs> exactly. And exactly, but precisely because, you know, this is a moment when all of these things are are impacting us. You know, advertising does change the way we think. And Smith is acutely aware of that. And know i think throughout the 1980s she became well known for creating works that scrutinized the depictions of women you know in popular culture and you know for her that was both the she wanted to take those things with the good and the bad and you know that people were not always receptive to that you know she was seen as her like almost some saw her work as celebrating these images of women that were offensive and for her it was more about reckoning with what they, they mean in our culture.
0: Maybe a good spot to note that Alexa Smith was pretty dedicated to showing her work with dealers who are women.
2: Yeah. These early shows with Rosamond Felsen in New York, she was showing with Holly Solomon. And then, you know, I mean, Margot Levin is like her closest collaborator throughout the 80s and 90s and really helps to place her work in institutional and prominent collections and you know, Smith has acknowledged that, like, that's who helped her continue surviving as an artist. Like, she she would say that Margot was the first person who could really sell her work. And that, you know, that matters
0: in, in an artist's livelihood. A lot of the Smiths within the MCA San Diego collection came in from, through, both from Margot Levin, but also through Margot Levin. Yeah, absolutely. When I think about Smith's work, I think of how there are a bunch of visual references or tropes that recur across it. She totally understands the way American art has been attracted to sunsets, totally understands the role snakes have played in American, particularly Protestant American culture. Smith loves, and I mean, loves movie posters. Are there places of address of Smiths that particularly interest you, that you found yourself of most caught up in as you as you worked on the show because there are, you know it ain't just those three I mentioned <laughs> definitely not yeah I mean throughout her
2: work there is this you know there there are these kind of constant motifs and themes that recur time and again and these images that you know are both real things and ideas and and like the one that really began to stick with me the more I worked on this show was the image of the car, which it's again, such a California, such an LA symbol, but also one that was part of, again, this like West, this idea of heading West, you know, so throughout the late 1980s and early 1990s, she did a really extensive body of work informed by Jack Kerouac's On the Road. And again, like, it's not a California story, but it's a story of heading West, and, you know, the car, it becomes this symbol of independence, of individualism, of adventure. And, you know, those things all get wrapped up in this idea of of self-transformation. And what's interesting is when you start to look back, you know, even just like in the years before the on the road works, you know, the car is certainly still kind of, it it lurks, you know, there's there's a piece in Raymond Chandler's LA that's very much about driving even though the car isn't pictured several of the wall paintings deal with the kind of linear perspective that one would see on the road but you know then in in even earlier pieces you know there's images of trains and steamboats and and it's often again this idea of like transportation of travel of like heading somewhere new and it, it's it's really It just strikes me the ways that that idea comes forward in all these different images.
0: There's a work in which my favorite Smith reference, The Sunset, melds with yours, the car, and that's a work from your collection, 1990s Adios, which is a kind of the overwheel part of an auto body panel with a sunset painted on it. The Bay Bridge, pointedly not the Golden Gate Bridge, looking west, and it's kind of a dystopian work. And the, the phrase that Smith paints onto it is in a sad red dusk, it was goodbye. And it's a good example of Smith interrogating the the Western Californian optimistic dream. Right.
2: Yeah. that you know, these kind of romantic visions, you know, like a, I mean, really beautiful sunset is then like laced with a sense of tragedy or, or ruin. And, you know, again, like this, like kind of the romance of it all really comes to the foreground. Also on that piece is like a sort of keychain that says "Melody" and a like a name, a name tag of a guy at a fill up station, if you will. Yes, exactly. Like a sort of patch of the name Slim, and so you know, it with just one line, you sort of you again, you have the bridge. Like not only do you have the, the car part itself, but the bridge extending into the distance. And, you know, this one line evocation that that is quite heartbreaking.
0: You know, there's there's also a little bit of then contemporary California history embedded in that work. In 1989, a part of the Bay Bridge collapsed in the Loma Prieta earthquake. So when we have this artwork, Adios, from 1990, like I'm sure that would have been, you know, I mean, like that was a pretty famous section of the bridge collapsing in the middle of a World Series baseball game or just before a World Series baseball game was about to start. So all, all of that, you know, kind of questioning the future of the West at, at a moment when the West... When it's literally crumbling. <laughs> yeah, yeah hard, hard, to, hard, to, hard to miss. I mentioned movie posters a moment ago, and I think I've mentioned magazine advertisements. I think we both mentioned magazine advertisements a couple times. How does Smith use them and why are they valuable to her? I mean, it changes over time, certainly.
2: I mean, in the early 1980s, she does this really great series called The 20th Century, where she takes a series of sort of like classic movie posters and silkscreens on top of them. And, you know, the phrase and image of the of the silkscreen, you know, stays the same in across every piece within the series, but the movie itself changes. And so in a lot of ways, it's this reminder that, you know, for all these sort of allegedly different stories and different adventures that might be, you know, captured in a movie, that Smith is looking for something kind of universal that happens within them. And and the silkscreen reads, I've died so often, made love so much, I've lost track of what's real. And this series sort of ends up being kind of like a cipher for so much of her work that we're really just like, we're telling ourselves the same stories over and over again. And so whether or not they're real, whether or not they're, you know, fake, kind of stops mattering, because it's just about whether or not we believe them, whether we're moved by them, whether we relate to them. And so I think there's that element to her interest in movie posters and then at the same time I think they also have this kind of like visual aesthetic that she's interested in. You know, she's she's typically using movie posters from, you know, the 30s and the 40s and she's like thinking about this period of old Hollywood. And at the time that she's making this work largely in in the 1980s, you know, this is not contemporary. It's not from her childhood, even necessarily, as someone born in 1949, but kind of looking to this, you know, allegedly nostalgic vision of the past to try and tease out, like, what those, how those images have settled into some kind of collective consciousness and finding ways of kind of jolting us into seeing what's really there. And I think of that so much in the piece, Blue Denim, from 1990, which puts two movie posters side by side and then sort of joins them again by a silkscreen of a car. And what at first kind of appears like two movies about like young rebellious love, we suddenly see how much more complicated those images are, how sexualized these teenage girls are in these movie posters and perhaps how violent these kind of voyeuristic
0: images can be. Smith even uses movie posters when she's not riffing on the poster form. There's a work in your collection in granite, which I think is typically installed outside. Yes, it is installed outside. What's what's that work and what is the movie poster on which Smith is riffing there? and In a way that links her work to a vast trove of, Amer- of American art, which is another Smith commonality that we're going to probably mostly skip past today because Lord knows I talk about it enough. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, that piece, which is a sort of granite tombstone installed outdoors, is titled Niagara. It's one of, you know, I think several pieces of Smith's that use, you know, Marilyn Monroe's image. And the the work sort of depicts Monroe as pictured on the movie poster Niagara. In this instance, her her hair is sort of extends and transforms into the Niagara Falls and again beneath the beneath the image is the text nothing in the world could keep it from going over the edge and so there's again this like this hint towards or it's not really even a hint in this case i mean it's it's a tombstone and has this really tragic line and so here we are like you know looking at one of you know america's most iconic and and infamous actresses and stars and really
0: moved to grapple with her her downfall and, and of course not only is the headshot of the movie poster borrowed for smith's work but the bit about going over the edge is within the niagara poster you know the original 1953 niagara poster too because in the poster marilyn monroe you know sort of in character sort of a not was there really a difference no is posed as kind of like reclining on the top of niagara falls as if she's you know about to go over the edge I want to finish by talking about another hallmark of Smith's work that I think is maybe less discussed than Smith's interest in collage, which is so forward that one can hardly miss it. Mm -hmm. And that is that only very rarely do we see the hand of the artist in Smith's work. Very rarely is there hand evidence of presence in, in the work. Not unusual for an artist of Smith's generation, of course, particularly feminist informed artists. How might we understand that? You know, it's
2: funny because in some ways that, you know, almost it makes me want to go back to collage. And then this idea that, you know, of course, of course, her hand is there because she's so careful and meticulous in in her combinations of text, image and object. You know, they her way of working was to sort of, you know, for years in her studio, there was just You know, dozens of collages in progress laying on the ground that she would just constantly working through, you know, walking past them, making adjustments until, you know, she finally decided they were done and and glued things down. But you're right that they're, you know, for especially when we think about the ways that she's working in installation, and, you know, she spent near a decade of her career focused on public art projects, you know, she was working on this scale that was completely not about her hand. And in a lot of ways, this resonates with the themes in her work since the 1970s, which is kind of calling into question ideas of authorship. You know, she's speaking only through the voice of of others, but certainly making herself known, you know, through these kind of like interjections, through her edits, through her revisions of of these texts or her adjustments to the images. So there's really this interesting back and forth between really asserting her perspective, but doing so in this this highly mediated way, which of course reflects the fact that she's thinking about the media we consume and trying to reach us, you know, through through those objects themselves. And then again, like there's like, there's always this kind of like zooming in and then this zooming out where then you think of like the wall paintings or these giant landscapes and you know, those were done in collaboration with scenic painters, with sign painters, you know, and in, in a lot of ways, she was like a stage director, you know, kind of
0: organizing these, these sets. I should note there's a substantial art history of that in Los Angeles, you know, Ed Ruscha, Judy Baca, I could go on.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And Smith is completely part of that. And I think, you know, her distinct position in it with having made so many works addressing Hollywood and and movies as subject matters sort of lends a certain slant to the way that she's working with these these scenic painters and, and thinking again about these kind of like industries that literally prop us up. Anthony Graham, thanks very much. Thank you so much.
0: That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth.